A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Monday, the 2nd of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's the eve of Election Day in the U.S., and so we're doing a special bonus episode of World Review to check in with the final polls and share some thoughts on what to expect from polling day, from election night, and what comes afterwards. And so I'm delighted to be joined not just by Emily in Washington, but also that we have Ben Walker with us, our data journalist, US election guru, polling meister and keeper of the hallowed New Statesman election results model. Ben, thank you for joining us. You're so kind. Thank you very much. Okay. So I'd like to come to you in a second to to give us the numbers. But first, Emily, can you start us off with some impressions from the final days of campaigning and also your thoughts on what's going to be most key in the next 48 hours? Sure. So here are the three things that I'm looking at. Who is turning out where, which sounds obvious, but, you know, there was a story, there's reports about, you know, early black voting turnout is not what Biden needs, but oh, wait, black voters tend to go to the polls day of. So, or like, how are Hispanic voters voting? It looks like Trump is retaining his support there from from 2016. Do older white voters in Florida indeed turn out for Biden, etc.? Second, do courts take the cases that Republicans are bringing before them to try to get votes thrown out? The most obvious example of this comes from Texas. Texas Republicans are trying to get over 110,000 votes thrown out in Harris County, which leans Democratic. Those ballots were dropped off by curbside voting. The Texas Secretary of State said they could do it. Yesterday, Texas's Supreme Court said they could do it. So now we're going to see if a federal court accepts those ballots or not. And also, what voter intimidation do we see? You know, over the weekend, a Biden bus appeared to be attempted to be driven off the road by Trump supporters. Thankfully, everybody was was all right. You know, you had an anti-Trump rally was canceled because of militia or, you know, an extremist group. That is a very concerning development in American politics. I would just add that, that this is not 2016, right? Like this time, four years ago, we had FBI Director James Comey announce an investigation into Hillary Clinton. We saw polls. Yes, they were wrong, but we saw those polls tightening. That didn't happen this time. So either polls would need to be more wrong for Trump than in 2016, or alternatively, things would need to be close enough that he could get enough votes thrown out. So that's where we are. Have you noticed any shifts of tone or message in the last few days? I mean, he had been delegitimizing the election and saying that there was fraud, baselessly saying that there was fraud from mail-in ballots before. But It is just wild to me that in the last 72 hours of your campaign, as the incumbent, your strategy is to say that this election is rigged, that any vote that's counted after midnight on November 3rd is fake, and you will be going to court. Like, that's your closing argument to voters? Yeah, that's literally an election between somebody who's saying, who's trying to get people out to vote, and somebody who's saying that the votes shouldn't be counted. Those are the two candidates. (laughs) That's what struck me this past weekend. 
Okay, so you say you say it's important who's turning out where, and for that, I will turn to to Ben. What do we know about that so far? Because it must be you've been elbow deep in the the polling and the numbers as part of your role, keep maintaining our model predictions of the outcome. It must be very hard to do so in a pandemic year when people's ordinary habits are so displaced from what they usually are. Absolutely. And, and the worst thing is we, we have a slight inclination of who's actually going to turn out on the day. It's more likely to be Republican-leaning voters, but but still it's just a little bit too much uncertainty. And as because of that, the number of people voting by mail has, of course, surged. At the moment, I think if the at last check, it was what, two-thirds of the total 2016 vote has already voted. So the number of voters who voted by mail-in ballots or early voting so far is at two-thirds of the total 2016 turnout, right? So that, that is quite significant. Across the board, both in polling and elsewhere, we've seen increased enthusiasm, increased engagement for both sides, because we should really remember what 2016 was. It was an unpopularity contest between Donald Trump, who was the in essence a new kid on the block, still unpopular to a huge majority of of the American people, as well as Hillary Clinton, a, a sort of like a, a well-known name, but again, still incredibly unpopular. What we have now actually is Trump, increasingly unpopular, but very inspires a lot of enthusiasm, zealotry almost, if you want to call it that, among his own supporters, among his own base. And then you have Joe Biden, who has net favorability, which is actually the last time we saw that was, well, of course, under Barack Obama. The people who are saying they're going to be turning out, turning out in greater numbers is actually, it, it's up across the board. You have it among minorities, which was a struggle for Hillary Clinton. And you have it also among Donald Trump's base, white voters without a college education. The risk, however, is are those white voters without a college education doing? Are they turning out to back up Donald Trump? Are they turning out to return him? Or are they actually swinging to Joe Biden? And the data we have at the moment suggests actually there has been a marked, one of the largest swings we've seen out of all demographic groups. At the moment, white voters without college education, particularly white women, are recording some of the largest swings in favour of Joe Biden this election season. Is it enough to win Joe Biden the Rust Belt states where white voters without college degree are located, um, polling the model? says yes. At the moment, according to the New Statesman's US election model, which I spent many months locked away in my basement making, at the moment we have Joe Biden with a three in four chance of winning Pennsylvania in Michigan. It's an 80% chance. And in Wisconsin, it's a 77% chance. And uh, in Pennsylvania, it just needs to be said, is supposedly the tipping point state, right? Because according to modeling, every time we run that model, the number of times Pennsylvania is the state in which tips the victor on the way past, you know, 270 electoral college votes. Pennsylvania is the state that does that most. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why we're very pleased to have our colleague from City Monitor, Jake Bloomgart, standing by in Philadelphia to cover that for us as part of our election night and aftermath coverage. Would you like to just, you've talked about the model, would you like to just talk us through how that model was created? You talk about concocting it in your basement and you know, great things can begin in basements. The uh, the Biden campaign practically began in, in his basement. We currently have Biden on an 89.7% chance of winning at the time that we record this. Why don't you talk us through, firstly, how that figure is arrived at, and secondly, how we should understand it going into election day? First of all, let's just uh, start with a slightly, hopefully not too patronising history lesson, which is in 2016, the 538 model, competitor here, sorry, didn't make my own model for the New Statesman back then. Other models are available. 
Yeah, other models are, of course, available. Donald Trump in 2016, according to the 538 model, had a 3 in 10 chance of winning the presidency. Now, let's just put that into context, 3 in 10. For every 10 times you run an election, Donald Trump wins that three times. Okay, that, that's pretty significant. And since our model actually started, really, we at the New Statesman have had Donald Trump starting off 120 days ago with a 1 in 10 chance. And today, it's also a 1 in 10 chance. About 50 to 60 days ago, Trump's chances upped themselves to about one in five. And then, of course, the debates happened and all that, and then it went down. But just to communicate, a one in 10 chance is a chance. It's a probability. It exists, right? I always like to say this to everyone. What are your chances of winning the lottery? If you ever go to a news agent to fill out a lottery ticket, your chances of winning the lottery is 0.000 something percent, right? That is not as high as Trump's chances of winning the presidency. If you had a 1% chance of winning the lottery, you'd think... Not really. Don't really have a chance, do I? Okay. What about a one in 10 chance? And you'll think though it's unlikely, incredibly unlikely, you would sit there thinking, yeah, I have a chance. And it is probably through that prism, you are best off looking at Trump's chances this election. Now, how I made it is, what I did is I combined three separate trackers. I have an economic tracker. Uh, I've created this tracker. It's just more like an index which sort of collates economic data, unemployment figures, income, inflation, and indexes them to decide whether this is positive for the incumbent or negative for the incumbent, right? So so positive GDP news, GDP growth means good news for the incumbent. The likelihood, based on the economic indicators themselves on their own, bode well, you know, for the incumbent if GDP is growing. Of course, COVID really has messed that up a little bit. So the economic tracker doesn't have as much weight in my final forecast. Nonetheless, the reality is, and how many voters vote according to the GDP numbers, how many voters feel that the economy is growing towards them, the reality is not much. And so what I included in that tracker of three was polling on perceptions of economic well-being, basically copying and pasting that Ronald Reagan question asked 40 years ago, which is, do you feel better off or worse off than you were 40 years ago? The reality is voters vote more on perception than reality. And so if they feel better off, they're more likely to back the incumbent. If they feel like a recovery is coming, they're more likely to back the incumbent. That, I say breathlessly, is tracker number one. Tracker number two is an issues index. This is basically gathering data on the issues Americans think is important to their vote and who they trust to best deal with them. So I gathered all the polling on what is the most important issue to your vote and of those issues, who do you trust most to deal with it? At the moment, the issues Americans are prioritizing is, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, the economy or the economic recovery, and to a lesser extent, slightly lower down, healthcare and national security. But uh, just to sort of like conceptualize this a little bit, let's take climate change. According to Americans, Joe Biden is far and away the leader on who'd best be able to deal with it compared to him and, him and Donald Trump. But less than 10% of Americans say it's an important enough issue to them, right? Though Joe Biden is the preferred candidate on issues climate change, how many Americans are going to vote according to it? Not that many. And so what I've created there is a weighted index, which sort of gives you a, does this benefit, does the overall headline issues that Americans are voting on, do they benefit Biden or do they benefit Trump? That is tracker number two. Tracker number three is basically your bare bones political voting intention. It's general voting intentions. Will you vote Donald Trump? Will you vote Joe Biden? It's both national and state-based polling here. This is where I guess my relative expertise, if you want to call it that, comes in. I wait by historical accuracy, how well those pollsters did in 2016, 
in those states that they're polling, weight also by sample size, the mode by which they conduct their polling, if it's live call, if it's online, to just general telephone as well. And from there, you have three trackers, one which tells you whether the economy is benefiting the incumbent or the opponent, one whether the issues are benefiting the incumbent or the opponent, and then voting intentions. From there, I combine them to produce what is state-by-state -state probabilities. So just give a random example. Florida at the moment is 65% chance for Joe Biden. All of these are individual separate probabilities. None of them are connected to each other because I then take all of these probabilities and put them into what is a simulator, a simulator which randomizes which state gets called first. They're all dependent on each other. So if Pennsylvania goes Biden, the likelihood of Ohio, Michigan and so on also goes Biden and all that kind of stuff. And from there, that's how I get my headline figures, which at the moment is Joe Biden has a nine in 10 chance of winning this election. So there are some factors that are making people very nervous that that nine in 10 chance is either not enough of a chance or overstated, overblown. One of those things is minority turnout and how non-white voters who traditionally are far more likely to vote Democratic than our white voters, how they'll vote. You know, there was a story over the weekend that Black turnout was not what it needs to be. There have been many stories, including by you, on Hispanic voters and what we, how people sometimes assume that they vote more Democratic than they do. What do you make of the kind of panic among Biden supporters, panic about minority turnout? I mean, it's, it's always there, isn't it? Every election in the final few days, the opponent, the challenger always gets a little bit of anxiety. And uh, there's a wonderful gem of a quote from the Wall Street Journal, which is, this election is probably the most competitive 10 point race I've ever seen, right? But, <laughs> but still, but still, you're anxious. And you, and you should be, to be honest, because again, we need to just communicate the probability a one in 10 chance is a, is a one in 10 chance. But anyway, no, regarding minorities, the annoying thing for pulses is, of course, polling is a science. It's not perfect. There's a range of error, all that. Uh, when it comes to polling Hispanic voters, pollsters do have a tendency to struggle more often than they would, say, with white voters for a few reasons. And it's simply disengagement among Hispanic voters is a lot higher than among white voters. So take, for example, Texas. I think what's the numbers now? Almost four in 10 of the Texan population is Hispanic. But of those that turn out, it's it's so much less. It's very little as a, as a, as a share of the Texan turnout, it's very small. Engagement among Hispanics is small. However, we are seeing polling which shows increased enthusiasm, increased willingness to turn out. And, the, and given you've just probably seen the numbers yourself, turnout in Texas is 106% of 2016 suggests something might be happening there, whether that's the base rallying to Trump or Hispanics turning out in huge numbers for the first time in a long time, we don't yet know. Pollsters struggle to poll Hispanics partly because of the language barrier. Hispanics who primarily speak Spanish don't normally engage with pollsters, and Hispanics who do primarily speak Spanish are typically more likely to be pro-Democrat, okay? So what we've been seeing recently is actually polls which show uh, Donald Trump is not winning Hispanics, he's not beating Biden on Hispanics, no Demo no, sorry, no Republican has ever beaten the Democrats on Hispanics. The closest, actually, interestingly enough, was 2004. George Bush came very close to winning the Hispanic vote then, but since then it's never got close. But what we're seeing is almost like a, a swing, 
And I should just say this, what matters this election is not which group people win, which group a candidate wins, it's swing, right? Joe Biden doesn't need to win white, non-college educated voters to win the Roosevelt states. He just needs to see a substantial enough swing. Right, to pick off enough of them. When we have these conversations, mm-hmm. what I want to be careful we're not doing is like blaming like, oh, black voters didn't turn out enough and so Biden lost. Or, oh, you know, Hispanic voters went for Trump in greater numbers and so that's why Biden Mm. Biden lost. Like, first of all, the people who voted for Trump are the people who are actually voting for Trump, which is predominantly white voters. And we should just be upfront about that. And second of all, we're having this conversation about modeling and polling and voting expectations. It's not about like casting aspersions on any one group. Yes, because I remember in 2016, how there were a few little think pieces put out about how not enough black voters in certain states turned out for exactly. Hillary Clinton. It's ugly and you don't really need to see that. But anyway, the problem for pollsters is they might not be sampling Hispanics accurately. And that could go two ways. Because what I wrote a piece about not too long ago was that if you turn out more Hispanic voters, the likelihood to vote Democrat falls because the unengaged, the disengaged Hispanic vote out there is more likely to be conservative and by extension, Republican leaning than Hispanics already engaged with their vote, right? And so it could go two ways. It could either go in Trump's favor, more Hispanics turning out overall, or pollsters could be really messing up. And uh, again, by not sampling enough Spanish-speaking Hispanics. And uh, as a consequence, we might actually be seeing Biden doing much better in places like Florida, Arizona, and Texas. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. So in a second, I'd like to come on to what we should look out for on election night and afterwards. But first, Ben, you've talked about various things that could lead to an upset. The, the, the model last time I checked, the central projection was Biden on 338 electoral college votes. He needs 270, sort of on the way to a landslide already. What, what sort of things could could mean you, you end up with a result quite a long way from that central projection in either direction? Ooh, well, the likelihood of us getting an error similar to 2016 in that pollsters understate Trump's strength by, you know, college education and ethnicity is incredibly unlikely. Pollsters in 2016, they went away, they changed the methodology, they came back and they trialed it. They trialed it in the 2018 midterm elections and almost all of them got it bang on. They got the vote share bang on for, you know, the Republicans and Democrats overall, except one pollster. And that was the Rasmussen pollster, the very pro-Republican Rasmussen pollster, who didn't change the methodology and overstated the Republican margin by 10 points. What surprises we could see? Yes, there's just a risk that they we could be getting the wrong and unrepresentative sample of voters in our polls. The likelihood of that, I would say at the moment is low. But there are a few other things, or perhaps one slightly more important thing that is perhaps going undiscussed, and it's this, the potential that Joe Biden could be winning by much more than he is at the moment. Pollsters may, on 2016, have overcorrected their methodology changes from what happened four years ago. So they might now be at risk of overstating the Trump vote. And I would just like to, if you can follow this here, just talk you through a school of thought, a growing school of thought among some of our competitors, and it's this. In 2016, you had state polls, national polls, Senate polls, all that kind of stuff. And then you also had 
congressional ballot voting intentions. Congressional ballot voting intentions gets next to no attention by any analysts or whoever, really. In 2016, they were showing a remarkably tight race, tighter than anything we were seeing in the state polls, tighter to the point that had they been used instead of the state polls, they would have been suggesting that Hillary Clinton might be struggling big time. John Trump might actually be doing really well in the Rust Belt states had we took those congressional ballot voting intentions to heart. We didn't because they're generic. It's basically, will you vote Democrat? Will you vote Republican? Right? We don't really pay as much attention to them as we do the, the, the personality ones. And there was a theory going around that Trump was putting off a lot of Republicans on the day, didn't happen as much. Okay, You look at those congressional ballot voting intentions this time around, and they're not showing a tight race. They're showing the Democrats ahead by 14, 15, 16 points. Now, I don't know how much weight to place on that. I don't know whether it's just an instance of people changing their vote. People, people vote differently. Marco Rubio, for example, won Florida by a larger margin than Donald Trump did in 2016. That might be happening, but on a more intense scale. We don't know. I hear, I hear Marco Rubio has opinions on Cuba. <laughs> yes, and I guess that might in part be because so many Cuban Hispanics actually voted for him by large portions. There's something unique about Florida. One, it's hated by Democrat watchers, thanks to 2000. And two, also that its diverse population is actually a lot more socially conservative than uh, the rest of the country as a whole. So Florida is a very unique. But what polls we have at the moment, the, ge the generic congressional ballot voting intentions, what they suggest is that Joe Biden might be winning this race by much bigger margins than what we're seeing at the moment. And that pollsters may be overcorrecting their mistakes of 2016. We don't know. It's a school of thought. It's a theory, but it's a potential. Okay, so so the polls could be wrong, but wrong in Biden's favour. Very interesting. You talk about what we're going to know on, on election night. The assumption seems to be that it may still be unclear, certainly by the time Europe wakes up on Wednesday. Or maybe, as, as you say, Biden will win so resoundingly that, that the result will become clear quite early on. I'd like to hear from you both briefly. What should we expect from election night? What will we find out when and what should we be watching out for? Emily, seeing as you will be manning our live coverage, on which more in a moment, why don't you start? Yeah, I think I said a version of this last week, but I, I do think that because this election will come down to the swing states, because we have the Electoral College, I would encourage interested listeners to really keep an eye on the Sun Belt. So that's Florida, but it's also Arizona, it's Georgia, it's Texas. And the reason is that those states, if you missed this last week, those states can start counting early votes ahead of election day, whereas the Rust Belt, the votes that they can count ahead of time, it, it's much more limited what they can do before like 8 p.m. on election night. So we may know, for example, Arizona on Tuesday, it would be difficult for us to say the same of Pennsylvania on Tuesday. So I'll be watching that. I will also be watching, as I said at the, at the top of this, just what, I mean, this is not election night, it's election day, but I, I do think that it's important. Like voter intimidation is also a story here. It's something that we should be paying attention to closely tomorrow. And also I'll be watching how the candidates comport themselves on election night, right? Like if it's leading toward Biden, does he decisively declare victory and try to get ahead of the Trump, the Trump story? Does Trump immediately, if it's just a Biden blowout, like is Trump still going to take this to court? And I, I just wanted to add that like, because I know that I've been saying for weeks that it's going to be really close. It, I said last week, I thought I still think it would be Trump, which I do. But it's not that I don't think that there could be a Biden blowout victory the night of. It's that I think that because of the conditions of the pandemic election, we need to be really careful about our expectations that we'll know a winner on election night as we normally, but not always do. It might be that Biden wins overwhelmingly and we know that on election night. It might be that Trump wins overwhelmingly or narrowly and we know that on election night. It might be that the result's uncertain. That seems like a pretty decent possibility. But one thing I think that we, and this applies particularly to us in the media, need to do 
is resist the temptation to make this about what Trump wants or what Trump is asserting primarily. Because my concern is that you end up with a situation where maybe the results look favorable for Biden or it's just unclear. And Trump comes out and just declares victory and says, well, those votes that, you know, those those states where Biden appears to be winning, it's all rigged. And the story becomes, what is Trump saying? Will Trump let Biden govern? Will Trump do this? Or what does Trump want? And I think that I mean, this applies particularly to the media in the US because they are shaping this story. But I think to the media generally and to to other commentators and people watching, it's really important to remember that what matters is the numbers. What matters is the legitimate votes defined by the rules and not by Donald Trump or whoever else and who wins on that basis. And I, I, I just think it's very important to differentiate Trump is saying this or claiming that or wants this, and this is the actual result. So just a, a passing thought on narrative building in the next 48, 72 hours. Anyway, with that, Ben, Ben, what are you looking out for? What I will be watching out mostly is swings. So as I said before, Biden doesn't need to win certain demographics to win the state. He just needs to see a, a sizable enough swing in his favor to win the state. So I always keep banging on about America's white population without a college degree, and uh, they are a sizable and influential enough electorate. Back during the days of Ronald Reagan, they represented two thirds of all voting Americans. Today, they now represent one in three. Okay, but they are concentrated mostly in the Rust Belt states, annoyingly Pennsylvania, where we will not have enough results, enough data on the night to properly call the result, but we will have them, weirdly enough, in Kentucky. Now, Kentucky, I'm not saying, of course, that's never going to swing Democrat or anything of the sort, but it has a sizable number of white working class voters without a college degree whose swings, whose vote share changes, we should be keeping an eye on. We should look in the county-based data to see who's swinging, by what margin and where, and we can hopefully use that to sort of project where it's happening all over. Again, the annoying thing, though, is the science. It's not 100% accurate. It's just almost like gives you an indication. It either puts a smile on your face or it might kind of makes you want to go grab a drink. and Depending on your political inclination, of course. Well, listeners, the good news is that we don't know exactly when we'll know what, but Emily and Ben will be on hand to explain it and analyse it and react to it when it does. We will have live coverage from Emily and Ben overnight and then ongoing coverage from the team on into Wednesday. So we will be pulling out these details and telling you about them. So do follow that coverage on our, our Twitter account and on our website. More of which on a second, but... As a final point, Emily, you you were doing an Ask Me on Reddit earlier and had a question that you wanted to refer to Ben. So why don't why don't we do that as our as our you ask us stand-in? So first of all, thank you to all of you World Review listeners who joined for the Reddit AMA today. That was it was really like cool to to hear from those of you who also listen to this podcast. I got two questions. One was from someone called Retire Binch, and the other one was from Gary O'Mario. And both of them were what interesting down ballot races. So not not the presidential race, what other races will you be looking at? And so Ben, I will start with you. Okay, so down ballot races, Senate races that I kind of will be paying attention to is one, South Carolina, but not really particularly because it's electorally interesting. There's been a lot of hype in that the Democratic opponent has raised a lot of money. But the reality is Lindsey Graham, the incumbent in, in South Carolina, is still far and out mostly the head. I think at the moment, if you had to model it, Lindsey Graham would have like a almost a four in 10 chance 
of holding South Carolina. Can we just, can we just have Emily give us a little potted portrait of Lindsey Graham for anyone who hasn't encountered him? Lindsey Graham is a senator from South Carolina who was sort of like the buddy to John McCain, the late senator from Arizona, and I think was seen as one of these very principled old school Republicans. And then over the course of the Trump administration became extremely like just a very outspoken Trump supporter, really led the charge on getting Brett Kavanaugh confirmed. And I think some people are like, what happened to Lindsey Graham? And the answer is that he is a politician who decided to hitch his wagon to Trump star. Thank you very much. Back to you, Ben. <laughs> I get that. I quite enjoyed that. Other races I suppose I'll be paying attention to is also just kind of like an indication of what is going to happen in the presidential ballot. So Michigan, I think it's fair to say we can sort of probably likely write off as a Biden win. Although, again, one in five chance for Trump to hold it still. But other modelling suggests Michigan is likely to be a hold for the Democratic incumbent there. Gary Peters, I think his name is. I suppose it might be worth looking at also the toss-up in Iowa. The incumbent Republican is having a very tight fight with the challenging Teresa Greenfield for the Democrats there. Not really much to say except this. Senator, there's, there's more of a likelihood of Joe Biden winning this race than there is of the Democrats winning the Senate. Emily, what are you watching? And also, what do you think is the chance that the, the Democrats will take the Senate? Because, of course, as, as many people have pointed out, whether or not the Democrats control the Senate will be crucial to the success of a Biden presidency if he, if he does win. I'm actually more confident that the Democrats will retake the Senate than I am Biden winning the White House, because I think there are people who really love Trump, who are not particularly enthused about their senators. So you could end up with a really fun outcome where the House and the Senate are both Democrat and yeah. Trump re-elected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a distinct possibility, although I could be wrong. There are a few interesting Senate races to watch. The two that I will be watching particularly closely. So I wrote this piece last week on NewStatesman.com about the normalization of anti-Semitism, particularly in the Republican Party. And one of this, one of the examples that I gave was this digital ad that Senator David Perdue in Georgia ran against his opponent, John Ossoff, who's Jewish. He kind of claimed that it was, made this, to me, not very believable claim that it was because of an outside vendor, whatever. David Perdue pulled out of his last debate against John Ossoff because the, like, the attacks that Ossoff landed on him went viral. Also, after we published that piece, another senator, Senator Dan Sullivan in Alaska, ran an ad against his opponent, who's also Jewish, in which the opponent, Dr. Algross, is like, he's like being like Senator Chuck Schumer from New York is like lurking behind him and, and Gross is holding money. So I will also be watching that one because I don't think that you should be able to run blatantly anti-Semitic ads as a sitting senator and not have a serious run for your, for your money in re-election. So the Georgia and Alaska will be the two that I'm watching. The good thing about Georgia is actually in recent weeks, polling has narrowed hugely, right? We now have a lot of polls which show the Democratic challenger, the one who faced the anti-Semitic abuse, leading Purdue. I'm so I'm so sorry. My pronunciation of American surnames is a bit... It's okay. It's yeah, terrible yeah. sometimes. I don't know how different it is sometimes. Ossoff is sometimes leading Purdue by three points, two points, one point. It's looking like Georgia is the toss-up of this election. I would just add that I will also be interested in the outcome in Maine as to whether Republican Senator Susan Collins gets re-elected. 
in that she is an interesting example of a Republican politician who has tried to some extent to distance themselves from Donald Trump. She she voted against repealing the Affordable Care Act. She doesn't seem to want to get drawn on whether she thinks he should be reelected. A lot of Republicans have simply, I mean, to, to go back to Lindsey Graham, have simply folded when, when presented with Trump's excesses and norm-breaking. I'll be intrigued to know whether she can carve out enough of an independent image there to be reelected in what's, let's face it, a fairly Democrat-leaning state. So that's one more, I think, worth watching. Well, finally, I think it's only fair for us to, having acknowledged all of the complexities and uncertainties, pin our colours to the mast and at least venture a prediction. And let's say, how many electoral college votes do we think Biden is going to win? And let's say once the, let's just assume a sort of a legitimate result not taking into account legal challenges, but based on the assumption that votes that should be counted will be counted. Ben, why don't you go first as our polling bureau? Oh, God. Okay. Thankfully, tomorrow I have a have a piece out on just which is basically going to be the final call for what the model thinks. And I am not the model. And I suppose I sort of have a different take about this, rather. I'm slightly, I suppose, marginally more confident about Biden's chances this election, much more so than Hillary Clinton. I suppose I think he's probably going to clear out the Rust Belt states and he might even, I think, pick up Ohio, owing in part due to relatively high unemployment there and the fading pandemic that is COVID-19 in the state. I think Biden should be more confident in winning the Rust Belt than the Sun Belt, simply because there's so much uncertainty about Hispanic voters in the Sun Belt. We don't, we don't really know if we're sampling them correctly. We don't really know if how energised the conservative sections of the Hispanic uh, vote are. And so I would really, if I wanted to give a number, it would be that Biden would be running closer to 300 and something electoral college votes for sure. Emily, what do you think? I uh, do not share this confidence. I could very easily, I think if Biden wins, it will be very close. I'm talking like a 272 victory. That's if he can take back Michigan and Wisconsin and win Arizona. I think that gets into like 272. If he cannot win Arizona, I, I am very wary about Ohio and Pennsylvania, in which case we have, I think it'll be like 261 Biden, 277 Trump. I am going to say about 320 on the grounds that I have great faith in our model, whose central projection of 338, I think is very credible. But I think that, am I right to say, Ben, that that assumes Biden winning Florida? At the moment, yes. So everything I've read about Florida makes me worry about that. So I I would reckon more in, okay, I'll say about 315. Roughly. So our, our model minus Florida on the grounds that I think I worry about Florida. Well, seeing as we've now all nailed our colours to the mast, it's only fair that we come back and be held accountable for them. Um, so we will be back with another special episode of World Review on Wednesday afternoon, UK time, to review what we know about the results by that point, the events of election night, and crunch some of the numbers. So do join us again for that. But in the meantime, please do tune in to our live coverage of election night and beyond, which will be starting at 6pm Washington time. That's 11pm UK time or midnight on Western continental Europe. Emily will be leading our coverage on our Twitter account at New Statesman, as well as at our election hub newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. She'll be joined by Ben and other members of the data team and the New Statesman's 
international team over the course of the night and into Wednesday to crunch the numbers, report on and analyze what happens and make some sense of it all. So we really hope that you join us for that overnight from Tuesday into Wednesday. We'll be publishing updates, particularly on Wednesday morning for those in Europe who decide to sleep in and stay up early, which might be the might be the best strategy. So I'd encourage everyone to keep an eye on that coverage as events unfold. We will be putting the link to our results model, as well as to Ben's recent piece on Hispanic voters. And when it goes up, his final take on the polling tomorrow, Tuesday, all on the webpage of this podcast. So do look out for that too. We would like to thank Ben Walker for joining us. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I now regret my prediction. Yeah, we will see you back here on Wednesday. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for listening. And until after the election. (laughs) (laughs) even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about quince they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.